A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Hover.com. Their thing is domains. Get 10% off your first purchase by going to Hover.com and using the offer code CanadaLand. Can I get a do-over? Last month, I tried to give you an inside look at how our arts institutions are being managed and mismanaged. It's a very tight-knit world, this world of galleries and orchestras and museums and art centers. Very insular world. It's hard to get people to talk. The uh, philanthropists, donors, administrators, and board members, very hard nut to crack. But because of a nasty divorce between Jeff Melanson the so-called rock star administrator of the Banff Center for the Arts and of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, from his estranged wife, the frozen French fry heiress, Eleanor McCain, because of that, we got a rare glimpse into this world. To jog your memory, McCain is trying to get an annulment from Melanson. She does not want to give him the $5 million prenup payday that a divorce would grant him. So she is arguing that their marriage was never valid to begin with, because Melanson was a fraudster from the start. And in making this case, she detailed a ton of alleged professional abuses that I had been getting tips about for years. 
She claims that Melanson is a remorseless manipulator who ruled with an iron hand, who fired employees unjustly, who boozed during business hours and at business functions, who launched and then abandoned grandiose projects, who had inappropriate sexual relationships at the National Ballet School and the Banff Center for the Arts and at the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, that he put his sexual partners on the payroll, traveling through Europe with them on the company dime, that he fired one woman following their affair, and that he was ultimately driven from the Banff Center because of multiple sexual harassment claims. Now, none of that has been proven in court, and Melanson denies it all. He calls it inaccurate and undignified. So, with all of that dirty laundry getting aired, I hoped that I could finally get somebody to speak frankly about the fine arts world in Canada and what to do about it. And I did not quite get there. No disrespect to my guest on that episode. It just was not the discussion that I promised you. So, I'd like a do-over. Anne Kingston of McLean's Magazine has been digging deep into the Jeff Melanson story. She has been able to get at the wider relevance it has on our cultural sector, and she joins me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Jamie Thompson, Victoria Hollingsworth, Andrew Henderson, Armin Krauss, Bianca, Rory, Jake Skaken, and Therese Taylor. Therese, why did you decide to be awesome? Mainstream media is really just too tight with corporate Canada and the status quo. And independent media like Canada Land helps shake up the media establishment. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by Hover.com and their thing is domains. They sell domains. They're the website you want to go to when you have an idea and you want a domain for it. 
And the reason why you want to use them is that they don't do heavy-handed upselling. They don't try to get you into other kinds of packages, want to build you a website. They don't try to disguise new services as tech help. If you want tech help, you get tech help. What they do is they help you get your domain very easily and intuitively. They help you run it. They also help you with email. That's it. That's what they do. And that's why we use them here at Canada Land. Check it out. Go to hover.com because they're good and also because the other people who do this are awful. Hover.com, you'll get 10% at checkout when you use the offer code CanadaLand. The other sponsor of today's episode is also a service that we use. It's also a service that I've been using before they were a sponsor of this show, and that service is FreshBooks. FreshBooks.com, they make small business accounting software designed for you. And it's intuitive to use, and as a result, you save time. That's a big deal, saving time. Like, it's just such a drag when these types of administrative tasks suck hours out of your work week. And I think I must save like three, four hours a week because I use FreshBooks for all of our billing, for all of our expense tracking, for all of our time tracking, for all those things. When it's tax time to add up all of our figures, FreshBooks makes it very easy. It simplifies our administrative tasks around here. And that's why I'm very happy that they have been our sponsor from the start. You can use their service for free for 30 days. When you do decide to become a customer of FreshBooks, tell them who sent you. You will be doing this show a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. So this is like a wonderful, salacious, juicy, tawdry divorce story that you've written about. I'm not above enjoying something like that. Um, But it's not just that. No. And obviously, I'm not above writing something like that. But I tried to do something beyond the sensationalism of the divorce itself, which is a, you know, a sad and messy occasion. And anybody who's gone through it, you know, just knows how awful it is and would not want their divorce sort of in the headlines, which this one obviously is. What I wanted to do with this story was talk about what it tells us about the Canadian art scenes, because we have two, you know, interesting polar opposites in a way. We have Eleanor McCain, big benefactor, also a singer who's, you know, carved out a career as a a singer. And you've got Jeff Melanson, who is well known within arts administration. He's kind of known as a cultural guru as part of the fawning coverage that he's had in the past few years. You write that the combatants in this divorce represent the extremes of the Canadian art world. So, you know, what does it tell us about the Canadian art world? Well, I, I think it, I mean, it shows us a bit of the machine. Uh, to the extent that we're dealing, let's remember, in terms of legal filings. Nothing has been proven in court. These are allegations being tossed around by two angry parties who obviously have insight into one another, but at the same time are trying to harm one another. So you cannot take it as gospel. But one thing that's interesting, I mean, many things are interesting in this story, but one thing is Eleanor McCain's first filing made the allegation that Jeff Melanson's seduction of her was, there's a parallel seduction that went on, and that was with the Canadian arts establishment, in which she has risen and is has a huge sort of reputation institutionally among, you know, philanthropists, power elite, etc. And what interested me was trying to deconstruct his rise and how it worked and how he got ahead. And really, the the lines are blurred completely if he's trying to seduce a wealthy benefactor to make a donation or if he's trying to seduce the board of an institution or when he's in these institutions, he has relationships with women who work there or he installs his girlfriends <laughs> into positions. It seems like it was all sort of of a piece. Well, it is of a piece, but I think you also have to take into account the fact, and this is very telling of the the 
broader landscape is that in order to survive and to thrive as an arts administrator, it's not enough to be a dusty old academic anymore. One has to be a seducer because that's marketing as part of a role. Fundraising is a huge part of the role. And, we, you know, I'd like to talk more about that because the rise of Jeff Melanson was the result of his ability to woo big dollars and donors to his big vision. You almost can't tell, you know, as a seductor, when he bowls over an organization and they hire him with the the jargon and the big vision and the ideas and, and his uh, charisma, are they being seduced themselves or are, they, or are they kind of making the calculation, well, he's going to be good at doing that when he's raising money for us. So it doesn't matter, you know, is it a secondary concern whether they are taken in I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, obviously, the seduction has to has to work at a baseline in order to get in the door. But obviously, uh, Jeff Melanson talked about cultural entrepreneurship. He talked about the fact that artists have to, you know, understand business, that talked about the transformative uh, role the arts play in society, in economies, very much the Richard Florida kind of um, theory in practice, so to speak. So a lot of people, it was very timely. People wanted to, Rob Ford brought him on board, you know, to consult because the idea of the merging of the private sector with the arts was a seductive one and a very timely one. And we should believe that the arts are transformative. But that wasn't, you know, the problem, the larger problem with Melanson was that he didn't necessarily follow through on on the big vision that he promised. I found that stuff almost ickier than the interpersonal stuff. This kind of snake oil sales, this jargon-laden creativity and change, disruption, cultural entrepreneurship. And, and, you know, you bring up Richard Richard Florida. It seems like we always have another one of these kind of big idea TED-talking gurus. And... I didn't even sense there was much. I felt like these were borrowed concepts that he was shopping around. Well, they're certainly not original. And what was amazing to me, part of the story, as far as I was concerned, was the media coverage of Jeff Melanson, which was fawning, which was it, it assumed that he had, you know, these ideas were his, but they're not. They, you know, they go back in time. And I talk about that a bit in the story. You know, he was tre- treated like this pioneer of these these ideas. They're not his. I mean, Richard Florida, you know stated them. Other people stated them before Florida. This new way of looking at arts and culture and economies, so to speak. You know, you have to remember we're dealing with a lot of change happening. So the idea that Melanson, we're talking about digital economies, we're talking about trying to figure out ways in which old platforms can be recalibrated for a digital age. So all of this kind of stuff resonated in a big way. But no, Melanson was not the originator of any of this, but people bought into it. I want to talk about the, the ideas themselves and how realistic they were and what became of them in a bit. But first, let's let's like look at this media side of that. You quote these sort of wonderful clippings he got. He was called the Turnaround King, an oracle, a cultural wonderkind, an arts visionary, a cultural rock star. The Globe and Mail wrote, if Toronto's arts institutions want to survive, they'd better start listening to Jeff Melanson. That's extraordinary. I mean, to put down, to say, like, their very survival rests on them kind of conferring upon him this kingly status, that this is the guy who will tell them how to survive. It's totally cult-like, isn't it? It's the uh, savior complex. It was, And the fact that what struck me is, you know, the lack of 
the lack of criticism. I wondered if he was a businessman, whether th- there would have been greater investigation into his quite grandiose claims at, at various points in his career at Banff and later at the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. But there didn't seem to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wondered why that was the case. And I think that obviously the seduction extended into the media as well. I mean, in um, Eleanor McCain's filing, she talks about him, you know, cultivating this kind of network within the media. And I think, again, that's something an arts administrator has to do. It's part of the job. But Melanson was particularly gifted at it. And he had close friends who were writers and editors and who, you know, I didn't write about it, but there was some trouble, you know, people who wanted to write critical stuff sometimes had difficulty getting in the door. You point to the fact that a Globe and Mail reporter spent six months as a – there was a partnership between the Globe and Mail and, and, and the Banff Centre. That's quite extraordinary, yes. It was, uh, it was Ian Brown was uh-huh. um, embedded for six months. And embedded? It was, it, at Banff. Now, Ian is, runs a program at Banff, so uh-huh. he's obviously – you know, he's been there. He knows, the, he knows the place very well. And it was his idea, he told me, that to, to sort of set up this partnership, the Globe bought into it. But it does – I mean, it's like embedding a reporter in Iraq or something. You create some complexities in terms of objectivity when you are embedded. And Melanson tried to do, you know, the same gambit with the New York Times and American papers, I understand, who did not bite. Well, I, you know, I know this just for years that this was sort of the plum gig that every magazine writer wants is you can get a residency at Banff and then they, they, they put you up in these little cabins that are quite well appointed and you, That's right. you know, uh, have an affair and hang out at Banff for a while. This seems to be like... Or you know, nurture your, you know, project if you care to write. Okay, yeah. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so that, I think, makes it a little bit difficult and, and some of that maybe does that predate Melanson? I mean, that might tell you not the not well. Certainly, the the Banff concept has been around as we know since the yeah. '30s. But but in terms of the embedding, no, it was singular, and it uh, it happened after Melanson started at Banff. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this is a a very tangible inhibitor in writing critically about these institutions and these people. It, it yes, I mean there's certain suasion that goes on when you're when you're part of an institution you're covering it's a conflict of interest that's difficult to surmount for sure. You quoted a headhunter whose job it is to look for arts administrators who said, "Well, this guy was the complete package and and you know, the talent pool is so shallow in Canada." What did you make of that, this idea that, that, you know, they had to go for him because there's just like nobody else? Well, I think the, the fellow you're speaking about um, was speaking kind of more generically about the arts scene, but where, you know, wherein somebody like Melanson is seen as a package. But the, the point he was making is that there are, there's not enough sort of weaning ground in Canada in terms of smaller, middle-sized institutions to kind of cut your teeth on before you take on the bigger ones. And the other fact is that as Canadians, we tend to like to bring in, to import our cultural leaders. There's some sort of cachet that's associated with that. So that, you know, somebody like Melanson, who has this kind of cachet, the self-created cachet, is is very winning. And the fact that he's, you know, Canadian and wants to stay in Canada was part of his kind of selling power. He, uh, beyond the jargon, you know, so you get the job, you've actually got to have a vision, a plan, and you've got to do something. You point out some of the things he did when he was with the uh, National Ballet School. He had a flash mob at the Eaton Centre. Uh, he had the Toronto Symphony Orchestra cover Drake. He added world music, jazz, and hip-hop to the curriculum at the Royal Conservatory of Music. A lot of this seems sort of like the 
initiative equivalent of that jargon. It kind of surface, uh, let, let's make this hip, let's modernize this, the, the way that you would almost prove that you're doing something contemporary to an aging benefactor. Well, that's it. And you have to understand that these are the very sort of tweaks to, you know, innovation with quotes around it that donors like to see. They like to feel that things are being modernized yeah. without necessarily a revolution taking place. And I talked to people within the TSO who were saying, you know, he would come and talk of innovation, but when it actually came down to you know, how are we innovating? And this requires huge structural change to innovate the way a, an orchestra, say, works. He'd say, well, we're going to bring Feist in. And ironically, Feist was this, was the uh, soundtrack to the flash mob back in, um, right. back in 2010. And they're saying that's not innovation. Arcade fire is not, you know, these, this is not going to bring in young audiences. And there was a sense of a divide for sure between the people in the organization and the people who were funding it. When you get to the actual like big reforms, um, you, you you write pretty damningly about how he had a habit of taking credit for other people's accomplishments, uh, coming into organizations at, at a certain point, claiming that they were in a rough shape, rougher shape than they were, so that he could then take credit for what happens next, or if things had had happened prior to him, he could say it was his doing. What did he do? At the National Ballet School, um, he came in after they'd finished a big capital campaign, so they were in transition, and he basically brought in a fundraiser who managed to generate a lot of money, and Melanson as well. Um, they finished the campaign. So I think that that was considered a an accomplishment on his side. There was a lawsuit at the end of it that we didn't hear about uh -huh. when the fundraiser went after um, what he felt was rightfully his. He was fired, and it was a messy situation. But at Banff, I think that he proposed a... Again, he went in after a capital campaign where money had been raised. Buildings have been built, some. I mean, there still had was work to be done. But he imagined this incredible complex that was going to, it began at a couple million dollars. And by the end of his imagining, it was close to a billion. And the board bought into this. Now, this is a small nonprofit sort of organization. But Melanson's talk about making it world class won them, you know. Yeah. And at the end of it, there's nothing to to show, to, for. To show. Yeah. but you know he he says he built a, a digital radio. He was had this grand ambition for a national broadcast, almost public radio. They built this digital platform at a sum of what I heard was about a million dollars. It closed down. The you know the whole his whole initiative is no more. They had to so they're basically recovering at Banff. It's tricky. Banff's a great place and you know it's it, they, but they, nobody wants to be honest about the but the kind of the wreckage. If you on the record, people will tell you off the record that they're still yeah. sort of scrambling and recovering and trying to right themselves from the whirlwind that was yeah. Jeff Melanson. That's the thing. This ripples out. So it's not just about this one guy but the institutions that bought into it. And then, you know, I knew people who were hired away for this Banff Radio Center and it was like, wow, somebody's actually putting money into a cool radio project right. in Canada. People in public radio are not used to getting job offers. And the whole thing, you know, when you actually started talking to them, it was it didn't make any sense. It was it was bound by CRTC regulation. In order to actually broadcast, they had to make it like a Banff community station, which was completely at odds with this world-class vision. People were completely shackled. It didn't work out. They shuttered the thing. To kind of broaden this from just Jeff Melanson and his uh, follies to what this says about everybody else, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. He convince Banff that you write $58 million as their budget per year. He got them to sign on to a $1 billion plan. And then when it comes to the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, it's the kind of thing that as a complete outsider, 
I would think is a great idea. He had this idea. Can you tell me about this? He had this idea for this crazy studio and how they were going to turn into a profit center. Yeah, I think you make a really interesting point there that, the, the, again, we're going to the lack of criticism. He left Banff two years into a five-year five contract. Five-year contract on a 10-year plan. On a 10-year plan, at least a 10-year plan. So, But nobody, everybody thought it was completely normal that he should pick up, pack off, and go to Toronto because his kids, he was, he was divorced and he wanted to see his children. Or if they didn't, they covered for him because I think it did shock them. But some of them made quotes about, oh, this will be okay. Oh, no. No, it was completely, nobody wanted to make ruffles or talk about it. But the TSO didn't seem to find that odd. They were so, you know, they were in need of leadership. They bought the family, leaving for family purposes, didn't question the fact that he was abandoning a huge project. And then signed on to this studio project, which is quite amazing. It was 166 million projected. Now, you have to remember the TSO is underwater financially, and they were planning a sort of a soundstage. The shades of Banff here, the idea of building this huge infrastructure would bring recording to Toronto, sound recording, film would be doing it. It would possibly be a home for the TSO. There was, you know, all the buzzwords, innovation, e-learning, an indigenous pavilion, or, you know, there's going to be indigenous projects as well. And so the TSO was supporting this. And I understand I was told it's on the back burner, which is absolutely no surprise because everybody I talked to thought it was a complete pipe dream. Anybody outside of the TSO. And you write that the plan was like, what are you going to do? The symphony orchestra is in in underwater financially. We're going to build this incredible soundstage recording facility where who's going to use it? How can you modernize the symphony orchestra? You get movie productions and video games to record scores, orchestral scores. Now, as an outsider, that sounds totally cool. Like, wow, this, that's a really great idea. That is a way that you could find a market for symphony orchestras. But then in your piece, you speak with somebody who actually knows the economy of this. And the few productions that do require symphony orchestras for their scoring will always go to Eastern Europe where there's non-unionized mu- musicians. Like, it was ne- there is no market for this. It would never have worked. No, there wasn't a market. And, and, you know, there's also all sorts of, you know, the idea that the TSO would have been the, you know, major stakeholder in this, again, was a bit delusional because, the you know, expecting the governments to buy into this wasn't going to happen. Where the money was going to come from was a huge question mark. It would have been corporations and then... Yeah, corporations, private donors, and, you know, could be like IMAX and Disney, but that would leave the TSO in a minority position, which wouldn't be helping them with their major revenue stream problems. Even if it did work. Even if it did work. So that, I think, also helps us take this to, like, away from him and towards what this tells us about the the arts world in general. Where were the grown-ups? Who was listening to this stuff the way that I would listen to it, as opposed to the way a professional would listen to it and actually do the due diligence and say... That's impossible. That money, where's going to come from? There is no market there. Why were those checks and balances not in place? Well, I mean, you'd have to speak to the TSO board about that, but I who think. Are they, who is the board of these organizations? What kind of people, like, are, are they not professionals who know? What they, technically, yes, they absolutely are captains of industry, you know, major, you know, investment people, people who have fiscal responsibility, people who have enough money also to contribute handsomely to the symphony itself. It speaks to a funding problem. There's such a sort of a desperation for funding to keep these organizations afloat. Figuring out, you know, because subscriptions aren't doing it, trying to figure out ways to, you know, and this is where Melanson's, quote, vision resonated with boards because he talked their language. But there wasn't any kind of due diligence done into the viability of it. 
When you say captains of industry, I, I take it you're not speaking about the arts industry. No, I'm talking about the business industry. So these people are not arts professionals. They are wealthy members of the board who, I mean, my understanding of how a lot of boards go in Canada is that you get people from investment banking, you get people from law, you get people, yes. and they volunteer their time and they're expected to raise a bunch of money amongst their network of... That's correct. But they don't know the arts world necessarily. No, and that's an, another interesting divide in this in the story that I kind of discovered was that, you know, Melanson's praise, it tended to come from the power, the captains of industry side, the philanthropist side, the, ironically, McCain side of the arts world. You know, within the arts community itself, there was huge frustration that this guy was actually getting credit um, for things that other people were doing better and more viably. And these, the spotlight was on him and, you know, this sort of carnival of wreckage, as opposed to, you know, people who were m- maybe leading the way in a, in, a, in a way that we need right now. Yeah. I mean, that's the part that kind of connected for me, just having been aware of a lot of people trying to make their way from the other side of this as artists who were always under the impression that there was this sort of layer of formalized arts world that was like a conversation between boards and industry and these administrators and the artists themselves Mm -hmm. never quite felt that this was, you know, all the people they dealt with when they were submitting grant applications, those people got paid every two weeks. Those people seem to live a very fancy life. They would see them at, at wine and cheese events, but the artists would sort of be like begging for crumbs. And you, and you look at some of the stuff like one of his achievements was he was able to get the federal government under Harper to earmark $25 for some new Canadian prize, arts prize. As if no, we, $25 million that you were – okay, that was the Canada prize. That yeah. was um, – it was originally he, – he came up with this idea for a prize that would give – money to international artists. And this was at, when he was at the National Ballet School. And the thinking was at the time that he would be, this would be his exit to something bigger from the school. The Olympics of Arts Awards. That's what it was billed. And somehow he got, they lobbied, or he lobbied government successfully. It was included in the 2009 budget. And this money was never given out. But it provided an excuse for the government to say, we're, we were on it. Here's we got this doing. prize. Yeah. And the money has disappeared. And so Similar to what he was able to get uh, the Ford administration to agree to. There's some kind of subsidy that was... Well, again, he's given the credit for this. I actually looked into that. This was when he was, you know, an advisor for a few months to the city of Toronto, Rob Ford, after his, his election in uh, 2009. Anyway, he... Um, yeah, there was a per capita. They were wanting to raise the amount of budgeting. And everybody went, hurrah, look at this, you know, the you know, the, the Toronto City Council approved this unanimously, but they didn't put any money for it. And the, that goal, I think it was for $25 a person, um, you know, per capita budgeted in the city, was a goal that was put forward within City Hall in 2003. So it's not Melanson's right. idea at all, but yet it sticks to him. And, you know, it's Nor interesting. Nor did it materialize under him. It hasn't materialized. Well, we'll see it in 2017. In 2017. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the kind of frustrating conception. And too often when we talk about arts funding, it becomes this polarized debate between not with my taxpayer money on this silly art that my five-year-old could do. And then the artist saying, well, we need arts because it enriches the human soul. And, and never do we actually get into the conversation about, I think, what really vexes artists, which is that it, it, it becomes a symbolic gesture for a company to have a sort of as a trophy for a bank to sponsor some big arts festival or for a benefactor to give some money or for a politician to say that they're behind some sort of subsidy. For the people on the ground who are trying to fund their artistic endeavors, they feel like they're cut out of it. 
There's a complete disconnect. And that's what one of the things that we, you know, that I explored in that piece. This is why this divorce, while tawdry, as you say, really does, you know, I would hope, start a conversation about the very issues mm-hmm. that are at its root. You can even look at this, you know, we're talking about Melanson Melanson. I'm kind of curious to look at Eleanor McCain as a wealthy heiress who is obviously passionate about the arts. You write about you know, some of the things that Melanson accuses her of, that she basically is a dilettante who loses money on her artistic endeavors, releasing her own, you know, jazz vocals and cheesy love songs and paying orchestras to follow her around, you know, in a way that I think is ripe for mockery. But I kind of compare her to somebody like a Peggy Guggenheim, right? Where you had uh, a wealthy heiress who was a lover of the arts who became an incredibly crucial person in collecting art in in the Guggenheim Museum and being, I mean, this is always traditionally a very important role, the, a patron of the arts. Our artists need these people. Like you could sort of suggest a completely different path. And it made me wonder, we don't have Guggenheims here. I think that you raise a really good point in the sense that that's very much the American model, the Carnegie's, the Rockefeller's, the, you the know, Gettys. the Guggenheim's, uh, the Get- Gettys. I mean, we, don't, we don't go to Banff in the States, you go to Yaddo, which was... Exactly. These, it, it was all from money that came from oil fortunes, mining fortunes, financiers. Exactly. But, but, but I can't think... There, here, it's the royal this, the royal that. Well, this is this is it. And I think that we have this culture of... Our culture of culture in this country is with this idea that the government funds it and yeah. that we're reliant on the government to fix the problem and that there isn't the same entrenched sense of, you know, personal responsibility to foster the arts or indeed love of the arts. And in fact, you mentioned Eleanor McCain and there was a lot of mocking of her, you know ambitions musically in Melanson's response to her filing. And I found that really interesting. Obviously, he had to say that because he's fighting, firing back. He wants, you know, his prenup to be honored, etc. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I thought it was really telling that someone who was a champion of the arts was belittling someone who really cared about music enough to, you know, she's incredibly energetic, no matter what you said, and, and resourceful and tried to make a career for herself and tried to connect to the wider arts world. And I found the belittling of that uh, small. For him to, to pull out the frustrated artist trope when he's used it himself. I mean, you write about how I think he was able to kind of curry a lot of uh, sympathy and favor. And it, it, it's sort of a shop-worn thing. You can kind of like play both sides. You're speaking to, you know, Melanson speaking to the board and to fundraisers that you know business. He called himself, I'm an artist with an MBA. Right. But then you speak to artists and say, oh, if I had the talent, I, I would have been one of you. Uh, and, you know, that he studied singing and he studied music, which you actually found there's a little bit of... It, well, yes. I mean, part of his part of his imagery was that he studied music at Oberlin, uh-huh. which is, you know, technically true, but it was sort of a, I can't remember, intensive workshop, but it became... He was a summer student. He you, was, could, you couldn't find him on the summer, No, he wasn't in the registry. He wasn't listed at all. So, but what's interesting is that, you know, it wasn't simply he just, you know, he said he studied, which technically is true. It became part of this, like when he was introduced, he would be introduced as having studied music at Oberlin. This is not him doing this. Him, this is him allowing this to happen, of yeah. course. But it's our, you know, it's very Canadian to be impressed by offshore arts schooling. And, you know, that was very telling to me. Very Canadian and very Canadian to sort of worship those who insult us because he, he presented his creativity and change, creative entrepreneurship stuff as a modern antidote to what he called 
the lumberjack model. Which is, yeah, the, the resources um, yeah, idea. Yeah, innovation over resources. But, well, but, but there's an insult, you know, that, that you know, he, he has his training elsewhere. He has his, he's, t- he's taking ideas and he, he's got a, a global world-class vision. And we're sort of this podunk provincial. <laughs> but we love world-class vision. I mean, yeah. he was, you know, he was preaching to an audience that wanted to be reminded that or believed that there were world-class. He, you know, I mean, going back to what you were saying, he understood how to speak to his audience. He knew how to work the angles. He knew how to, you know, make his pitch resonate with whatever audience he was talking to. And the world-class stuff, especially at a time when people, there is this uncertainty about what's going on economically and certainly in terms of where we're going with the digital, you know, digital platforms, people wanted to believe what he said. Yeah, bullshit baffles brains, you know. Uh, But where do we go from here? Like, you know, Meyer Guggenheim was uh, in the mining and smelting business. Uh, J. Paul Getty was an oil baron. We have the Irvings here. They're oil barons. We don't have the Irving, like a, a world-class Irving museum. We don't have the McCain Institute for the Arts. N- so Not know, on the same scale by any – yeah, no. absolutely. We don't see that. They and, contribute, but they don't seem to – and I think that that changes the paradigm because when they have their name on it, then you actually get that sort of private sector pressure to have – like then you have people who really do care about whether or not it's – batting at a world-class, you know, you know. Well, they create the context for that to happen as well. And I think that that's an interesting point in that, you know, when you look at where the money migrates in this country in terms of being a benefactor, it's often to health care yeah. or, you know, it is not to building these, you know, programs or structures that honor the arts. The whole landscape that this describes me, and I kept thinking about this when I was reading your piece, because the new government with Melanie Jolie as our new heritage minister, is doing a overhaul, soup to nuts, like top to bottom. We are reimagining everything is on the table. Every cultural institution in Canada, there is money uh, on the offer. Mm-hmm. But in, in, in many ways, it's sort of what I have been kind of calling for in some of my more you know critical musings on this show in the past, which is that we need to really start fresh and think about, yes, we're going to fund cultural and creative enterprise in this country, but the system is broken and it's broken in the commercial side. It's broken mm-hmm. the artistic side, the high arts, the commercial, industrial, everything, digital. But then I, I read this and you've got these administrators and boards and, you know, I guess, quote unquote, stakeholders, those people who have made a career out of figuring out the angles of thriving within the Canadian arts bureaucracies are not going away. They want a seat at the table under whatever comes next. What does the Melanson story tell us about where we need to kind of direct Canadian cultural institutions next? Well, I think that certainly it means that we should be looking at that stru- that ballast that is created by all of those, quote, stakeholders, an odious word, right? And see where the dismantling actually is occurring in this, in, in this grand plan, because there is a huge network infrastructure that is arts administration. And some of the organizations obviously are part of this big plan, uh, but I don't, you know, we don't know yet exactly how this is going to take place. I mean, I would also, you know, 
where does Library Archives of Canada fit in? Like, there's a lot of questions that we don't we don't know yet. I mean, it's a great first step to recognize that something's broken, but in order to fix it, you have to dismantle it all. And there's a lot of incentive not to, you know, given given the structure and the strength of the structure that exists. I guess I just wonder if they're just going to kind of rearrange the structure by which no no one wants to say, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want a smaller piece of the pie going forward. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, the point is, I mean, there is money forthcoming. You know, right now we're in the honeymoon phase with the government. We, you know, it's a, this is a sounds like a really wonderful initiative. We'll just have to see at this, which is a really weak kind of response. But I mean, see, but also look at it critically. You know, it, one thing that this story kind of reminded me of is that we don't. The arts are so troubled in this country in many ways in terms of finance, you know, finances and just staying afloat that we're not critical about the the structures that support them. And uh, almost as if doing that is, is somehow damning the arts themselves. And it's not. Um, in fact, it could be a way of resuscitating the actual artistic process. Yeah. I mean, everybody seems to agree that it's broken, that it, 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 there's a problem. But figuring out the solution seems a lot more... Uh... Mm-hmm. If only there was some guru. If only. A creative visionary who could come and bring ideas from the real arts world and show us the way. Well, you, uh, you know, be very afraid of what you ask for. Okay, that's your Canada Land Show. I hope you liked it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me and I will respond when I can. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is at CanadaLandShow.com. Our crowdfunding site is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. The next episode of CanadaLand Commons will be up on Tuesday, and the next episode of Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. I make this show with Katie Jensen. Russell Gregg handles our syndication to campus and community radio stations across this country. If you like what we do, please support us. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.